This is Lease FM, a place where I, Lease, talk to creatives, artists, cool writers, and Langston Alston today. Hello. <laughs> Who is probably all of those things. I know you're an artist and a creative. Are you a cool writer? Uh, I've written some things before. I don't know how many of them were cool, but I, I'm a semi-functional writer. I'm okay. Literate. Sweet. <laughs> That's good to know. Glad we got that out of the way. Um, Langston and I met years ago just in Champaign in and around you know, that whole U of I circuit, I guess. Mm -hmm. But now we meet again because he's in town from New Orleans um, working on his or presenting his amazing gallery space um, called When People Could Fly. Yeah, that's the time. When People Could Fly. And I went and saw it today, and it's pretty insanely cool. So congratulations. I, I didn't know what to expect, but it was like... Well, why don't you why don't you tell me where it came from? How where did this opportunity come from to be in that specific space? Um, and where has this idea been growing from? So, the idea itself was to present uh, a story in the format of like a, a room, like a room sized comic book. That's something I wanted to do for a while. I grew up around like a lot of comic books. That's where I learned to draw from, and that's where a lot of my influence comes from in terms of like style and content. Um, and I've never made a comic book before, but I've made a lot of like kind of expansive stories with drawing uh, in a lot of different ways. And so I wanted to do one that was a little bit tighter and a little bit more focused and was focused around, you know, issues that I thought were like contemporary and important. Um, and so I, I had been thinking about like what space I could do that in for a while. And it just so happened that there were some people in Chicago that had offered me a space to do a show in. Uh, and so I, I basically accepted blindly without knowing where the space was or really anything about it. Uh, I got some really sketchy pictures in advance. <laughs> Classic, um, love those sketchy pictures. Right. <laughs> and uh, then kind of just dived in head first. And basically the first week of me getting here was just like, a landslide of various failures. Uh, and so the whole project kind of fell apart before really? it started. Tell me about some of those, if you if you care to relive them, uh, or we can I mean, skip yeah, it. Yeah, reliving is not a big idea. Some of them are going to remain a little bit confidential, but For uh, sure. basically the space was a little bit more challenging to work with than what I expected. And uh, it was a little more challenging to dig up funds to do the thing than I expected. So I ended up having to kind of come out of pocket to make it happen. Um, but it all ended up working out. I managed to kind of fall in with like a really, really good group of creatives that really was just local to the, the area where I was doing the piece in. Um, a lot of, a lot of artists live right around the gallery and they just kind of started like dropping in on me. It was somewhat without warning, uh, as I started working and I was kind of inundated with this like creative community that was like super supportive the whole way through. So I ended up getting like really, really quality documentation. Uh, shout out to Ear to Ground Media for facilitating that, but really mostly Evan, uh, who is also from downstate Illinois like me, and was like very, very, very forthcoming with his time and his energy and his skill as like a photographer and also somebody who connects people. Um, and it just so happened at the gallery was around the corner from his house. And so it was like really easy to like make that connection. And there's a ton of other people that showed up and showed support in like, you know, some minor ways and some major ways 
to like make the whole show work. So it turned out at the end of the day that even though I didn't know coming into it where the gallery was, the location was like integral for its success. And the story that is in the gallery, the story that's in the room size comic book, is basically entirely based on the area where the gallery is located. It's Humboldt like, Park. Yeah, it's in Humboldt Park, and the story kind of unfolds essentially like all along North Avenue, so that it traces this this path from like a thoroughly gentrified space um, to a much less gentrified space, and it traces this like path of economic violence. Uh, up to where the gallery is located and identifies people and businesses along the way. Um, so that was like the, the jumping off point for the story and that wouldn't have happened had the gallery not been located where it was. Uh, I don't know what the story would have been about had it been like a more normal place for an art gallery. Like I'm not sure how that would look or what my inspiration would have been but it probably would have been worse. So yeah. ultimately I'm really... Uh, in some ways, lucky that I ended up where I did. So, how did you go about designing that story? So, did you you just you came here from New Orleans mm-hmm. with kind of like a vague idea, or were you just kind of like, let's see what where this goes? Like, you knew you wanted to do the comic book sized room, or room sized comic book. <laughs> um, but then, how did the story unfold for you? Was it as you were walking up and down North Avenue, or doing yeah, research, or? Um, the story kind of came from, so I, there were a few stories that I had worked out before I got to the location. Mm-hmm. And it ended up for a variety of reasons that it didn't make sense to do any of the ones that I had planned in advance. And so I basically just redid everything once I got in the room and got started working. And so the, uh, the room actually breaks down into two parts. There's like drawings that cover the whole walls and those drawings kind of provide the setting for a set of paintings that also are like integrated into the drawings. And so the drawings themselves are just black and white and they're like basically a freestyle based on whatever I would experience in a given day uh, and people I would meet in a given day. And so anytime I would meet somebody interesting, they would get drawn into the, the piece. And wow. I think, I don't know, I'm gonna say like 75% of the figures that appear in that piece are actual people that I had at least a conversation with, but the majority of them actually came into the space at one point and like were with me for some part of the process, mm-hmm. uh, whether it be like short or long. And I, you know, it was like a lot of different conversations that helped me get a sense of how the story could look in the space, but also just like gave me cool characters to draw. So that was like where the black and white drawings came from and the color, the painting parts are like a, a story that's like superimposed on that setting. And those are not people that I've met. That's just like a, it's a story that's like about police violence. And so it uh, makes sort of literal the story about economic violence that's in the, the background painting. And um, so that story is one that I had kind of figured out while I was in the space doing the drawings um, formally. And it's like an issue that obviously is, is a hot topic now. And it's one that I've been like engaged with with my artwork for a long time. And so uh, I thought that it would be, I thought it would fit well with like this larger narrative about gentrification because it's like two types of violence. And one is one that we have like a really active conversation about. And another one is one that's, uh, there's an active conversation about it 
but activism around that issue is a little more challenging because we're dealing with economic forces uh, and people don't typically want to actively challenge those things um, from the top down. For sure. Yeah. Damn. So like explaining that to someone is, is do you even attempt to explain it to people before they come to the studio or you just kind of like say like, okay. So this, this like interview is going to be the first time where I really like lay out a okay. lot of my thinking for the thing. Cool. Uh, I've, I've described pieces of it to friends uh, and people who would ask me in the space. But generally, I think that the work inside the gallery speaks for itself. It does. And I would prefer for people to be able to come into it without my read mm-hmm. kind of clouding their vision. Because um, the, the story has some surprises in it, and it's got humor. It's got, like, a lot going on. So if I, like, lay out, like, the really, like, hard motivations of why I made it, it would either, like, I, I have a feeling that it, is kind of intimidating to hear. And it like also kind of strips away the discovery of like moving through the room. And so I, I tend to stay away from that when people are actually coming to visit the gallery. Uh, even when people like ask me like, what is this about? I'm like, well, just walk through it. Uh, it was a little difficult at the actual opening because it was like just so packed out that like people couldn't actually move through the room. Right. But people have been coming through all this week and like spending a little bit more extra time with the, the piece and Everybody that's come in and had like an individual moment to like move through the space has responded to it really well. And they've had like, you know, like a couple questions about like where I got ideas from or mm-hmm. like how long something took me. But generally, I think people get it once they move through the space. Yeah. Uh, and on what level they get it, I'm not entirely sure, but there's like a couple of little things in there to like guide them with my thinking. And like, I'm totally happy for people to come out of it with a different understanding of the piece than the one that I have, because I think that that's kind of what makes it interesting. You know, like it's not, it's not interesting if it's a closed book at the end. Um, and a lot of my goal in making it was to make something that was circular because like these problems that the story is about are circular. You know, there's no activist solution that's like actively ending either of those things, right? There's a lot of people who are active around both things and they're working hard and doing a lot of really, really valuable work but none of that is like amounting to like a conclusion right for either the problem of like active police violence or the problem of gentrification and displacement and like economic violence like none of those things are on the way out uh and so to that end the story that i made is circular you just by virtue of the detail that you circulate the room multiple times and uh i mean we've circulated these issues in the same way multiple times in our various communities in new orleans and in chicago um, so that was kind of the idea for the piece. That's where it came from. Totally. How long have you been drawing? How long have you been an artist? Uh, when I did know, it start? Man. I, Art I've class? been drawing forever. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I've drawn pretty habitually for my whole life. I used to get in a lot of trouble in elementary school because I drew and didn't listen. Um, I always pretend that I was listening because, you know, I was, like, fairly smart in this elementary school. Like, you can fill in the blanks. It's not that hard. Yeah. I wasn't listening. You know what I mean? Like, not really. Uh, I don't think I missed any content in, like, kindergarten through fourth grade. But It's probably good practice. Yeah, but I've been drawing the whole time that I've been able to draw. And I started painting, I guess, kind of late comparatively. I don't think I started painting really until I was, like, at the end of high school. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I got good at painting I don't know if I'm good at painting yet, but I'm still working on it. You know, everything is a work in progress. Uh, yeah. 
So I've been doing it for a while. Uh, I've been doing it professionally, like where it's my primary means of income since I left U of I, so that's 2014. So however long that is. Sweet, three years. Yeah. yeah. Killing it. And there have been some hiccups along the way. Always and are. some alternative sources of income that popped up here and there. But like painting has been like a driving thing. That's what I've been trying to do since then. Sweet. Let's get into the influences. Um, and these can be, you know, in kind of whatever variety you want them to be. They can be painters or drawers or artists or bigger concepts or musicians or kind of whatever. And I don't know if you want to talk specifically influences on this piece or on all of your work, but do you, can you think of like just one that pops up right away? Yeah, I mean, let's, I'm gonna go ahead and like jump into this piece specifically. Uh, a major influence for it, definitely James Jean. He did, uh, he's done a lot of uh, incredible artwork. He's an incredible illustrator. Uh, he came to, I think his art career from comics. Also, he did like comic covers for a long time for a series called Fables. Uh, he's like probably one of my favorite living artists, period. What do you like about him? Uh, just like the draftsmanship is incredible. He's an incredible painter. His observation of the world is like really accurate and effective and like sincere. And like, I don't know, he just captures emotion visually very well. Uh, and it's also weird. It's like surreal. Uh, but the colors aren't shitty like Dolly. But um, <laughs> he, yeah, so James Jean is incredible. And he did a couple of things that really informed this piece uh, that were, I think, for Prada. He did, like, these, like, massive, like, runway installations. So they're, like, these, like, whole environments where Prada would show its clothes. And, like, all, I think there are three of them, and all three of them kind of have always been remarkable to me because it's a space that's, like, totally controlled by an artist, uh, or maybe for these, a group of artists. I'm not entirely sure what the workflow was like for that. But it's, like, every piece of the space was considered... Uh, and every piece of the space was in some way adorned or they chose not to embellish it. You know, there's nothing in there where it's like, oh, it'd be too difficult to do the ceiling or too hard to do the floor, right? Yeah. That's not a thing. It's just they do everything. Wow. And so that's always been really impressive to me. I've always wanted to do something that comprehensive. Uh, so this isn't that, but it's my first effort at making a comprehensive piece where I really, really consider every part of it. And I don't think... I want to be involved in like a show where I don't have an opportunity to at least do that on like a basic level mm -hmm. because I think that that makes the work that I'm like presenting a lot more exciting and so like his example is the one I'm trying to like jump into if I'm doing shows in the future where I want to be able to like actually like think about how all the work is being presented and even if that doesn't mean drawings are actually on the wall I want them to be like arranged not just like paintings in a room because I think that's kind of just like a stale way to present work in general so yeah that's like driving influence for the like comprehensive show thing um hebrew brantley is obviously like a chicago artist who's hella major tell me more about about him though because uh, people might not yeah i mean i think probably a lot of listeners will know yeah but, like he also does like some really impressive uh like freestyle type drawing mm -hmm. work and then like his work engages with like blackness and politics in its own like really like powerful and poignant active way and so that's like an influence in that way. It's just like good to see, it's really helpful to see like a black artist that does, you know, this like energetic, fun work operating at a really high level and getting like accolades for that. So like that is, uh, I don't know, having that example out there and especially being in Chicago and having that example is like really helpful. For sure. Like to just like put that in a really simple way. 
And I don't know. I just like fucking. I like his work a lot. Yeah. I think it's cool. Um, and I, I try not to like cop too much style from yeah. him, you know, because like that would be awkward. But I definitely like look up to that material. Um, yeah. So when you're drawing, so like when you drew this, it, you're drawing on the wall. Like it's not like you're. The paintings, did you do those beforehand or those on Everything easel? was done in the room wow. in order. Damn, that's 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 intense. How yeah. is that different than drawing like on a table for you? Drawing? Uh, it's not really. I mean, it's not. It's just no. like a different position of your arm. Yeah, it just means I have to like sit and stand differently. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I like drawing a lot and I like drawing big. Yeah. So like the bigger the canvas for me, the more fun I'm probably going to have. And the more like physically active I can be in a space while I'm working, the more engaged I stay. Like, that's why I really like mural work and like work that's even larger scale than what this gallery is. Yeah. Because I like to be like physically engaged in like the work that I'm doing. Um, I don't know. It helps me feel like I'm working. One, you yeah. know, it's like if I'm sitting and painting at a table all day, I kind of feel like I didn't do any work. I kind of feel like I don't know. I just feel whack. Yeah. So it's nice to be able to like, get outside and actually work. Or even if I'm inside, like actually have to do something like physical to make the thing function. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's it's only the only difference is that I like it more. Not it's not necessarily like a practical difference. I just use a bigger pen and everything's cool. Yeah, totally. Um, and what is what what's the difference between to you seeing a, a picture of a painting or a picture of a, a mural or whatever than actually? I know it seems like a dumb question, but then actually going to it, you know, like why uh, why is being surrounded by it all the more uh, powerful it's super different all the time it's different for different muralists mm-hmm. so this is not like a dig at anybody in particular but like a lot of murals especially now i think are done really really fast and so sometimes going to see them in person can actually be a little disappointing from like a technical standpoint because you see all of the layers of paint and all the colors that were used and there's like less than you want there to be um, so sometimes that's a bummer. Sometimes it's not. There are a few murals that you'll go see and you'll be like, wow, those people are like really good. Like mm-hmm. I can't do that stuff. Like you'll see like levels of technical excellence that are incredible and it's like pervasive it's, like, across the whole piece. Um, so sometimes it can be really enriching to go see his piece and sometimes it can be like a minor bummer. It's like either smaller than you thought it was <laughs> or like shittier. Right. Uh, but I think it's important to see art in person. Uh, like the Takashi Murakami exhibit that's at the MCA right now, I had never seen any of his work in person, I don't think. And seeing how those pieces are made is incredible. The level of craftsmanship throughout that show is ridiculous. Uh, like seeing what you can do when you have the resources to have like a massive team like that and the resources to like do everything in the best way it can be done is like, It's not just inspiring, but it's, like, informative, right? Like, you see, it's like, oh, if you, like, want to make a multi-layered, like, screen print, like, this is how good it can be, and, like, this is the scale you can do it at. Like, that stuff is is amazing, and, like, the cleanliness of those pieces, like, everything about them is remarkable, and none of that really reads when you see a digital image because the images are so precise that you can't, find the craft in it until you go there and you actually see you're like that's how it's made and that's amazing yeah so like there are a few pieces like that out in the world where 
to see the actual craft of how they're put together is like it's like educational you just like look at it and you're like wow like they really made the shit out of that they really did that so I don't know. I appreciate that. Like Murakami is definitely like the most recent example I saw in person, where I was like, okay, cool. Like you really, you you know how to make a painting. Yeah. Um, They're just massive and like so bright. That I think that was what I took away. Yeah, the pigment is is remarkable and it's hella consistent. Yeah. Yeah, they do that. And Um, there's so many different stories in within them, which I mean, same with with your piece. I, I. Well, I looked at it twice. I had to walk around the room twice because I like the first half. I like looked at the lower part, and then I was like, and then I realized there's all these like storefronts and all these billboards and and all your commentary. I, but it's just so cool how immersive that can be when you do physically go see it for right. sure. Right, and uh, so with my piece, it was I had to do it pretty fast to make the show work because mm-hmm. uh, I I'm not here forever, and the show's not going to be up forever. So I had to get done so that people could go see it. Yeah. Um, I would love to have an opportunity to do a piece like this and and put a little bit more time and labor into it. Uh, not because I'm dissatisfied with how this worked at all. I think that in the space and the time, it worked really well. Uh, but I just would like to be able to, like, spin the same type of... I don't know. There's not a better word for it. I'd like to spend more time with the pieces because that's, like, the people that I really look up, look up to have the the luxury of being able to get paid for their time at a rate that makes sense. Yeah. And so they can they can really take a little bit more uh and make things a little more complete. So next time around. Yeah. Next comic book room. For sure. Uh look for it to be a little denser and a little bit more uh I don't want to say planned out cuz I the the planning for this was like very off the cuff, mm-hmm. but it worked really well in the space at the location mm-hmm. that it was at. Like it being in Humble Park and it being wild shit happening around me every day, um, made it so that I would not have wanted to be in there with a prescriptive plan. Yeah. Right. Like the Boost Mobile store next to me got robbed one night while I was there. Wow. Well, so the you story. were next door. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't like a crazy robbery. It's not like people like came in with like AK forty sevens and like <laughs> right like, right masks or anything yeah. like that. Like. They just, like, threw a rock in, ran the store, and then, like, ran out. And I didn't see shit. I was, like, in the bathroom. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> but then you... But, like, it was it was wow. intense because it happened. Yeah. And you're like, damn, that could have happened, like, right here. And also because I had just, like, drawn some people flipping over a cop car, and then I had to talk to police, and they were, like, insistent that I, like, give them a statement. I didn't see anything, so we had to go through that whole process. Uh, Wait, they literally flipped over the cop car? No, I had drawn that in the in Oh, you... Oh. Yeah, nobody flipped over a cop oh, okay, car okay, in Humboldt okay. Park on that night. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but they very well could have. Right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, take your time. Like, figure out what you need to do. But... Uh, huh. Yeah, so that was... that. It's like all types of things like that. There's like wild stories like that that are in the actual drawing uh, that I wouldn't have had room to add if the drawing had been like fleshed out in advance. Yeah. So I want to have like room for that. Yeah. But I also want to take a little more time to really like make sure that everything is as good as it can be. Um, so yeah, next time around, that's the goal. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Well, I mean, I think you did a great, I mean, I know you did a great job. It's like that you just must have had so much like, you just knew that it needed to be good on like the first time around because you were under a time constraint. So Yeah. Yeah. Which is a little stressful at times. Yeah. But like ultimately... I don't know. It's it's also just about like trusting the mistakes that you make and and trusting that they're going to be all right because there's a ton of mistakes in there that I think are fine. Yeah. Um, you know, I have a different mentality than a lot of other artists that I know who are a little bit more 
married to their perfectionism uh-huh. and their uh like the finer points of their process whereas like i have a lot of room for errors and like bouncing off of errors and having a little fun with like mistakes that i make uh and that helps me get done pretty fast that's great and that's yeah, sh- yeah. totally wow that's awesome oh, okay so back to the influences can you think of a third one uh, I mean, we just said the Murakami show was an yeah. influence, so that definitely was. Um, what was your favorite part about it? My favorite part about it, uh, I mean, just like the the craft, the the intricacy mm-hmm. of everything, seeing what can be done when you really know how to like delegate with a team or whatever. Yeah. The um, like really, yeah, like when you can effectively delegate work to team members and like you have the resources to make sure that they're able to do their job at the highest possible level. Like, seeing that was really cool. Yeah. Because uh, it's, like, the vision being realized by a bunch of people yeah. as opposed to just one. Yeah, which because it's, like, I was in the middle of doing this, like, kind of, like, Herculean task for one person to do. And, like, seeing that, I was like, oh, you don't have to do it this way. You can, like, do it smarter. Right. And so <laughs> that was probably the most exciting part about it Yeah, to me. good timing on that being in town. Yeah. So we'll see how that impacts my life going forward. Totally. Like, um, yeah, that was neat. Sweet. Uh, All right, well, then number four. Number four. Oh, man. I mean, number four, like, influence for the show. Mm -hmm. Like, this is probably the number one influence, honestly. It has to be, like, Humboldt Park itself and, like, the stuff that would happen around me and the people that I would meet from there while I was working. Uh, Without that, like, the show would have sucked. You know, like, wouldn't have been married to the place where it was made Mm -hmm. at all. Um and I think I think that probably I could have had like a similar relationship to another place in the city, like where I like really because like when I was working on the show, I was like in that building or on that block all day, every day, like day and night, like from like 9 a.m. to like two or three. And so I would see like kind of the arc of the day in an interesting way and like interact with people like over the course of the day in an interesting way. Uh, and I don't know, it was just like those people, like they're like literally how they looked. And then also like the stories that they would tell or the things they would do in a given day. And just like the way that people drive up and down North Avenue all crazy. Uh, like that's all in the show and the show is kind of about that. So without that being like my environment while I was making it, I don't know what I would have come up with. So that ultimately is probably the biggest influence for how things are in that space and like the attitude of the show like that it all comes from and being there it, that's a common thing for artists to base a lot of their work on like when you're in new orleans do you base a lot of the work on the stories and the history yeah, there absolutely like everything i do in new orleans is because it's in new orleans uh it isn't necessarily directly about new orleans but I can't do any work. And I think, so this is like probably universally true about my process, but like I can't do any work that's not directly uh, influenced by like the place and the history of the place, like the geography and the history together uh, and feel good about it. Like that's the only way I feel like the work I'm doing is complete because I don't want to just be talking out of my ass as an artist. I think that it's like genuinely important for artists to be honest and I think it's like one of the few places where you can have a job and be honest all the time. Uh, and I know that, you know, 
you have to like censor yourself for like corporate interests and get your check or whatever all the time. And I right. definitely have that happen to me. Yeah. But at the same time, I think in your personal work and as much as is possible, you have a responsibility to be honest if you want to call yourself an artist because otherwise I don't necessarily know what differentiates an artist from like an advertiser or a designer. Not that those people aren't artists, but like what, what makes art for quote unquote art's sake or like art that's like not designed to sell a product fundamentally different from that. And I think that probably that thing is the ability to just like tell your own truth as completely as possible. And so I want to be very careful about doing that essentially. And so that means that when I come to a place, I have to be observant and like operate from observation, operate from research rather than operating out of my own like notion of a place. Um, and so with this piece that I just did, it was basically all observation. There wasn't like a ton of exhaustive research that went into it. When I'm working on pieces over a longer period of time, uh, normally there's like a relatively high amount of research that goes into it about like the history of the place and the actual like location itself. So like with projects in New Orleans, that's like, it's actually a lot of fun in New Orleans because New Orleans has a really long, really weird history. Yeah. Uh, the last piece I did there that was major that like really fit that bill was on a cathedral that was like the site where the first black Civil War hero was buried by the only Catholic priest in Louisiana at the time who was an abolitionist, who was uh, against slavery. Um, wow. The official stance of the Catholic Church in New Orleans and throughout the Confederacy during the Civil War was pro-slavery because uh, they had a lot of wealth from slavery and they were going to keep getting it. And so there was not a lot of like support for black Catholics, even though there were a lot of black Catholics in New Orleans, but there was one particular priest uh, who was like vehemently against slavery and who had like a strong relationship with this black Civil War hero named Andre Caillou. Uh, and that site happens to be like relatively close to my house. And that church called St. Rose happens to be uh, being renovated into a theater. It was no longer a church. Wow. Uh, yeah, I think it had like, I think it closed after Katrina. Uh, the Catholic Church like sold off a lot of properties after mm -hmm. Katrina. Um, and like, there's, so there's a ton of churches in New Orleans that are repurposed into weird things. But I want to take the opportunity, like this lapse between being abandoned and being re-inhabited to like reflect on the history. And so there's like a set of murals there that celebrate the life of this Civil War hero, Andre Caillou, and then also the life and radical history of this like white priest named Father Maestri. And so that's like a piece that relates pretty directly to like the location that exists at and like the history of the piece itself. And then also like it like comes into contemporary history because these are people who were really, really radical in terms of like their mentality in that time. And also like in a lot of ways that radicalism is still radical now Yeah. because uh, Maestri was actively trying to desegregate his congregation. He was trying to like bring blacks, not just into the Catholic church, but into like this like larger community in New Orleans and like support them and be present for them. Uh, and then like Andre Caillou was just like, he was trying to uplift all the people around him. He was like actively working to free people from slavery that were in his family. 
uh, which is something that a lot of free black people in the city were doing at that time. And it's like interesting to see that wealth extraction because they had to buy back family members from masters, right? So he had to spend, at the time he spent his entire life savings to free his mother, but she wasn't even technically free. She uh, was his slave. So he owned his mother uh, until she died, which is like a tragic thing, but it's like, I mean, like, excuse, people might take this as hyperbole, but that's, like, not fundamentally different from, like, the legal system as it exists now, right, where people have to invest huge amounts of their money to bail family members out from jail and keep family members free. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, like, such a pay-to-play system that you still see that same type of, like, like, your actual physical freedom is tied to your ability to pay for it still if you're black. And really, if you just live in the United States and you're engaged with the legal system at all, but it's amplified for black people. So it's like there's, like, all these active parallels between the life of Andre Caillou and the life of Father Maestri and, like, the same political struggles that we're dealing with now. And so that was, like, the that's like the most recent piece yeah. that involved research that I did. So bringing all that together... Were you reading books or like Wikipedia? Like, where the heck did you get all of that information? I mean, it sounds like you know these people that you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, I mean, it's like so yeah. cool how well you have researched it. There's only your... one book, honestly. These really? people aren't like super well written about. Yeah. So there's like records that the Catholic Church has kept that are accessible uh, that kind of trace Maestri's history because mm-hmm. he was a priest. Uh, and so he came over from France. So his entire time in the Catholic Church is pretty thoroughly documented, and you can follow that. Uh, and then he wrote letters because he was a priest, and so those things, a lot of them still exist. Uh, so his history is pretty well documented, but there's only one actual book that has it all together in there. And then Andre Caillou is a little tougher to like follow. A lot of the history that you get with Andre Caillou is like receipts of like sale from like the time when he was a slave and then Where rece- do you find that? Uh they were actually collected pretty conveniently in this book that I have. Oh that's honestly. Good. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And it's yeah. called the uh I think the Black Patriot and the White Priest or some shit oh, like that. Okay, it's cool. like yeah, it ha- that's what it's called. Um so yeah, th- those were collected there for me and then I was able to like go and get some other stuff mm-hmm. for Maestri. Uh and then a lot of other stuff about Caillou is just like property that he bought, sold, debts that he had, like things like that. Like it's basically receipts that trace these people's history. Wow. And then there's like some really hyperbolic storytelling that was done about them after their deaths. Uh, and then a lot of that actually kind of died off. So there's a lot of piecing together that mm-hmm. has to happen with that story, which is kind of interesting because, you know, like uh, New Orleans after the first year of the war was occupied by the Union. All the black people in New Orleans fought as or all of the black soldiers enlisted uh fought for the union army mm-hmm. and uh still it's like i mean we just took down our confederate monuments the obvious ones uh wow yeah but the confederacy was never really like a functional or active state right in the city yeah uh and then you have all these like black civil war actual heroes that fought to free black people from slavery in a majority black city and they're not like remembered or idolized at all. It's like a really, it's not strange because you have to like understand that this is a city that has like been dealing with this like level of like racism and oppression since they started it so that they could like keep people working for free. But it's frustrating. And so a lot of that piece was like trying to piece together that history and like find a way to present it visually 
uh, just because I present things visually. That's like my skill set. Yeah. So, yeah. So cool. How was the reception? Uh, it was good. It was really good. Is it um, still up? Or? It is still up. Uh, it's not really supposed to be. I think they're starting construction of the building on the building soon, so it comes down for that. Uh, Will we'll they see. put it back up? Uh, I don't actually know where it's going after oh. that. It's like three, like 15 foot tall panels. Oh, wow. Yeah. So like finding a home <laughs> for it has been its whole own thing. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. There's somewhere, it's going to get stored inside for a little while and then hopefully can get displayed outdoors again soon. Uh, Is that how a lot of your artwork goes? Kind of like it's up temporarily and then. I think all public artwork. Yeah. Kind of has that life. Right. Right. Where it's like. It's in public until it isn't in public anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, murals get painted over or destroyed. Like, I don't know. Maybe eventually I'll do a piece that has more longevity than the ones that I'm doing right now. But, you know, like anything that's going to be out and exposed to the elements has a fixed lifespan no matter what. So I'm never really tripping about the lifespan of my pieces. Uh, yeah, it's like, it, it's fun because it gives me the impetus to keep creating them. I can't like... Uh, you know, sit back and say, yeah. well, I finished my work, you know, for, you know, X amount of time because I know that there's like a, a time limit, right? Like these things are going to go away. And so I got to make new ones. So you don't get sad? No, nah, no. Nah. I mean, I make stuff so consistently and so habitually. Yeah. Uh, and I'm like kind of immediately dissatisfied with things after I make them. <laughs> right. So it never really like feels bad to me to see yeah. something go away because it lets me start with a clean slate. I know that other people engage with the work a little differently and like get attached to it in a, like a, a different way than I get attached to it. And so I know there's like other people that respond to it differently than I do, but I don't ever really trip about it. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Have you done commercial stuff? Yeah, in like various different ways. Um, I don't know. None of it's like super exciting. I don't have like a clothing line out in the streets right yeah, now. Yeah, right. But, uh, <laughs> Maybe if, soon. Yeah. If people write me a check, then I do work for them yeah. normally. Like what kind of stuff? Oh, man. I don't know. Like I did some like shoes for Reebok for All-Star Weekend in New Orleans. But like it wasn't like a like a thing where it's like Langston Olsen is doing shoes for Reebok. It's like somebody's doing shoes right. for Reebok. Yeah. It happened to me. Yeah. It's just like, uh, oh, look at those cool Reebok shoes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like stuff like that where it's just like, you know, people need an artist. Yeah. Uh, oftentimes, if it's like a corporate situation, they don't need me. They just need an artist mm-hmm. uh maybe that will change over time uh and then my checks will get bigger yeah we'll see it will yeah <laughs> yeah um cool all right number five what do no, you think number five my fifth influence this is the last one so make it good i'm sure there's plenty more but yeah i don't know it's like i want to i'm like wait waffling between like saying another like artistic mm-hmm. influence or another place influence or like a musical influence. Why don't you do a musical one? Yeah, I just yeah. do a musical one. Cool. I don't know. It's Did like you like listen to a specific thing while you were paint or while you were putting this together? Or? I listened to all types of things while I was yeah. painting. Uh, I mean, the new Tyler the Creator album was on a lot, and but I also listened to the new Twenty One Savage album like a ton of times. Neither of those are really influences. Okay, for okay. The piece, so. but hey, I listened <laughs> to them a lot of times. Soundtracks. Yeah, soundtracks. Um, I think probably it's like. Like, hip-hop in general mm-hmm. is probably the reason why my art is the way it is. I don't know what my work would be like without hip-hop being in the world. Uh, and there are a few rappers that I think influence me more than others in terms of, like, day-to-day creativity. I think Outkast is, like, way up there. 
uh, I don't know if they're number one, but they're they're high on the list in terms of like they just have like so much like flavor, but they're also able to really tell you a story. Yeah. Uh, and like they're also like I don't know they free you up to be like weird, which is helpful. Uh, so I guess yeah, let's let's shout out to Outcast for yeah. the fifth influence because they they really have like just in the trajectory of my artistic career, they've like okayed a lot of like weirdness, and they've kind of kept it all grounded in like some really like genuine honest storytelling uh which doesn't exist everywhere you know it's like i just said that the the thing i think is important about artistry is honesty i think that's a group that is consistently honest if they're anything for sure so yeah what's your favorite outcast song or album or probably the whole like southern playlistic album is my favorite by far atl aliens is probably a close second Mm -hmm. but southern playlistic is my shit why uh, Why that one? First of all, I like the cover. It's just good colors. Yeah. What's um, that look like? It's like their faces, but it's red. It's not like groundbreaking or right. anything. I just like like looking at it. Yeah. And then I don't know. It's like it's like it's got a flavor. You yeah. know? It's like sounds like an Outcast album, an ex- like that Outcast yeah. album. I can yeah. totally see that looking at your work. It's just like exciting and movement and energy yeah yeah and I, I don't know i want the work to flow so that's something i'm working on is making the work like like flow like be a little smoother mm-hmm. um i think I'm, i don't know i'm getting there dude you got it i had a point actually about three quarters of the way through but i'm not gonna give anything away but i was looking at something and then i was like oh and then i like went back to like another part of the room and i was like that's flow Right, connected. Yeah. That's the that's the thing is like I want it to be intricate, right? I yeah. want you to like move through a story and like find different paths through it, like as you go and like get different details. You know? Totally. Like, yeah. Yeah. So if you had to design one artist, I feel like I know the answer already, album cover art, who would it be? Would it be Outcast? No, because no. they're not about to make another album. True, but um who would it be? Let me think for a second. I'm gonna go through my iTunes oh, library do it. for just a moment here. I want to get some people who are currently active. Yeah. Uh, I mean, actually, on the realistic tip, I think it would be fun to do a Smino album cover. Oh. Uh, that would be tight. Yeah, totally. So, Smee, if you listen to this, <laughs> let me do the album cover. <laughs> Hit us up. <laughs> yeah, holla at me. <laughs> my, my rates are affordable. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's that's the one I want to do in go. the near future. Sweet. Yeah, I love that. Have you done one before? I've done a few album covers. I actually kind of like doing album covers. I did uh, Malcolm London's album cover. Okay. Uh, Mother Nature, a group called Mother Nature. Mm-hmm, they're from mm-hmm. Urbana. Uh, they're up here now, though. Did I've done? I think all of their album covers, or, or two of them. Do you usually listen to the album before you? If I can. Do, yeah. If I can, I would like to make it like directly related to the album. Sometimes I'm not able to actually listen to the material before I make the cover. Yeah. But yeah, if I'm able to listen to it, I I prefer to. Um, yeah, I like album covers a lot. I like working with musicians. Um, yeah, it's fun. Cool. There we go. Yeah. Five influences behind Five when people could fly. Mm-hmm. Where did the title come from? We'll we'll finish with that. Uh, so there was like a book of old folk tales that was in my parents' house when I was growing up called When People Could Fly. It was like a compendium of stories from like slavery, basically. And uh, one of the stories was like about how people in Africa had wings. They were like free and could fly. And then over the process of the Middle Passage, people lost their wings. Uh, and then 
somehow, and I actually forget the exact mechanism, but somebody got their wings back and they flew away and showed other people how to do it. And so everybody was able to like escape from slavery by flying on these like big black wings, uh, like black angel wings or raven wings or whatever. And so it's like this story that like on the one hand, it's like grounded in this like real active oppression. Like these people were still slaves while they were telling the story. Um, but on the other hand, it's like really hopeful and beautiful. And so, I don't know, it seemed like a place to start the narrative that isn't going to be too prescriptive, right? You can like move forward from that title with whatever understanding of it that you have or whatever understanding of it that you want to take and like it then enter into this like room-sized folktale about like a contemporary issue, right? So it's like it can either be bleak or it can be bright uh, and you just have to kind of approach it how you want to approach it. Well, congratulations. I think it's a triumph. I'm really excited to bring some friends by. Um, and it runs through... Uh, technically, I think we got to take it down this Sunday. But okay. I think they're going to give me another week. Okay, sweet. Uh, On the I've record. Been, yeah, I've we been telling people week. that. Yeah. We'll see if it actually happens. I don't really know uh, when they're going to paint over everything. But I'm going to be in there until they paint over it. Uh, <laughs> so just keep bringing people by. Sweet. And we've got some cool documentation. There's like a 3D walkthrough model that I'll try and figure out how to get you the link yeah, so you can have it on your website. For sure. Uh, that thing is really sweet. So that's out there. Awesome. And then, um, well, there, we're, we're working on a, like a panorama, but like flat. Okay, cool. Uh, so that there can be a book afterwards. Wow. Or at least a zine. Right. So there's going to be some ways to experience this after it comes down. Mm -hmm. Uh, so just keep your eyes open for that. There's going to be some cool stuff coming out. Awesome. Congratulations. Um, again, Langston, Alston, when people could fly, it's on North Avenue, 3203. 3203 West North Avenue. And the title of the gallery space is? Uh, Slate Arts and Performance. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So head on in if you listen to this before Sunday, August, <laughs> yeah, whatever. Yeah, right, so. yeah, hurry up and listen to this and then show up <laughs> to the gallery. For sure, awesome. Thank you so much for joining me, Langston. Yeah, of course, thank you. This is Lisa FM. Hey.